What would you say about the new commandment? Well, let's hear what Jesus says. John 13, 31. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him him in himself and glorify him at once. We looked at that last week. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now we'll deal with that more when we get to chapter 14, because he's going to reiterate some things with regards to, to that. But for today, verse 34, a new commandment, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I can tell you this right off. I Basically what we did with the men on Saturday is... What I do every time I open up Scripture to to teach in a Tuesday or Sunday, I ask questions. I start asking questions. I've got questions. I've got a lot of questions about this. New. How is this new? Here's a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. The commandment to love The commandment in itself is not new. We all recognize that. Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what can we say is new in the way love obviously is not new? We're to love our neighbor as ourself. We know that when Jesus was asked what the two greatest commandments are or were, he goes right He goes to this. So, what is new? Well, for one thing, the giver is new. You know what that guy said right there? He said Jesus is a lawgiver. Well, you know what? That's new. The guy giving the commandment, it's not Moses anymore. You know what? There's a new lawgiver on the scene. Don't ever think that Jesus just simply came to re-articulate Moses. Because you can't, you can't say that if you read the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, and I'll tell you some of the things he says you've heard said is exactly what Moses said. And then he says, but I say unto you. I'll tell you this, he never disagreed with Moses, but he is a lawgiver that is greater than Moses. Isn't that what Hebrews says? He's He's... He's a greater lawgiver, folks. And he's on the land. He's on the scene. So that's new. But perhaps the object of our love is new. You know what's very interesting? Is that very specifically, he says one another. Well, you know who was sitting there. John was sitting there. And so when John goes over and writes First John, what does he talk about? You know, he doesn't really emphasize loving our neighbor. He emphasizes loving our brother, one another. Wow, now that's new. It's not so much my neighbor as it is fellow Christians. 
that Jesus is concerned about right here. And so perhaps it's the standard of comparison that's new. When you say, what do you mean? Just this. What did Moses want us to love our neighbor like? Ourselves. So basically, what, what, what were you thinking about when you were thinking about loving your neighbor? You were thinking about you. What does Jesus want us to think about when it comes to loving our brother? Him. So rather than looking in the mirror, Jesus says, look at me. So that's new. So, but I still have questions. You know what one of my questions is? If Jesus came along and he's giving us a new commandment, and it, it perhaps superior to the old covenant command to love, you know what one of my questions is? Why then do the New Testament authors continue to talk about the Mosaic command? Only John. And I know you could make a case, the royal law, James talks about it, the law of Christ, Paul talks about. But isn't it interesting? I find this interesting. Romans 13, 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Moses. He doesn't, Paul doesn't quote Jesus. He quotes Moses. I just wonder this. If Jesus came along after Moses and he gave a commandment that seems to be superior, you would think from that point in the Bible all the way forward, why isn't everybody just saying that? Why are they actually going back and quoting Moses? In fact, Romans 13, it happens. Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So I have that question. Another question. Why does John talk with double talk? Why when John in 1 John talks about this new commandment, he says it's an old commandment. He first says it's not a new commandment, it's an old commandment, but it is a new commandment. You want to see that? Let's go look at that. First go to 2 John. We don't go to 2 John much, but we will today. 2 John. I want to flesh this out a little bit. There's all sorts of practical applications before we get to the end of this. But I just want to flesh some of this out. What are we dealing with here? Look at 2 John, verse 4. 2 John is after 1 John and before 3 John. So, I... Rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, Jesus said it's a new commandment. Why would John say that it's not a new commandment? Maybe because John is writing a long time after that upper room. And it was new when Jesus gave it, but what he's saying to these people is it's not so new anymore. We've had it for quite a while now. Perhaps that's what he means. Now go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 
So just back a book. And we're going to dive in at verse 7. 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I am writing you. Now notice this again. It's the same kind of verbiage. I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had. Again, he says that. He said that in 2 John 2, that you had from the beginning. The beginning of what? Maybe the beginning all the way back to Moses, but maybe just the beginning ever since Christ was here. And now maybe it's several decades after Christ has gone, ascended to glory. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. So anyone baffled? Okay, now keep your eyes here. Notice this. Notice something about what's happening in 1 John 2. I want you to see the flow. Look at verses 3 and 4. 1 John, verses 3 and 4. Do you see, it's, it's speaking about the commandments, plural. You see what John's doing as, as we move down through chapter 2? Well, you watch the flow. John transitions our attention from all of Christ's commandments being the test of true Christianity, right? If you say you know him, but you're not keeping these commandments, that's really problematic. Kind of son of thunder comes out. You're a liar. Wow, the apostle of love gets pretty strong there. But then you notice how it transitions to a single commandment being the test of true Christianity. When we get to, look at verse 8. You see, new commandment. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. You see the test now. The acid test of genuine Christianity. He, he moves from 3 and 4 talking about all the commandments to moving about a single one. And so we've got this idea of he's, he's focusing in on this. And then when he focuses in on this one commandment, he says it's old and it's new. Now, you know what jumps out at me when I read that? Wow. God inspired that. You know what that tells me? God wants me to know there's something about love that's old and there's something about love that's new. He wouldn't have wrote like that unless he meant for me to know something about both. And listen, if we say something is old and new, in exactly the same respect. That's a contradiction. The only way you can say something is old and something is new if you're talking about in two different respects. Like, we don't have any problem. I, Joshua, he's, he's, he's got a new car. Martian would say, no, that's an old car. Joshua would say, that's a new car. None of us have any problem with that at all. Because it's not in the exact same respect. There's, there's a perspective there. And so we don't all get bent out of shape. So John sees that in this commandment of love, there's something both old and new. And God believes both truths are absolutely essential. So I'm thinking, okay, what does, why does God want us to know that the commandment to love is old. Well, here's something to notice. Go back to 2 John. 
Second John. It could be old since Jesus gave the commandment years before first John. Because John, John is written about when Christ was here. First John is obviously after Jesus has long ascended and now he's writing to God's people. So that may be, that may be the sense in which it's old. Jesus spoke it in time past. It could be old since it comes from the Old Testament. But let me tell you something. You know, you know what I find? I find this, that when Jesus came, he was very interested in making certain that everything he said was based on the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies. He pointed to what scripture said all the time. And in his day, scripture was the Old Testament. And then you know what's very interesting? Once Jesus ascends, and then his apostles are writing. You know what they always wanted us to know? They want us to know if Jesus said it or if it came from the Old Testament. It's, it's this sense of continuity. Do you know why? Because these guys wanted to be absolutely certain that they were showing you on what foundation, what they said was based. Notice 2 John chapter or, or chapter 1. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead. Now, I think about this verse often. Do you know what the characteristic is of false teachers? They go on ahead. Do you know that's not good? You don't want to go on ahead of what continuity we have from the past. And I think that that may as much, because this is obviously on John's mind. You know what? John is being confronted by a, guy, a lot of guys, antichrists, he calls them, that are coming along and they're saying this and they're saying that and they're, they're saying the other thing. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. You see, see where he's planting this? The teaching of Christ. This, is, this commandment is old in the sense that Jesus said it. It was new then. But in that sense, it's old. We had it from the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, the beginning all the way back when Scripture was written by Moses or the beginning back when we sat in that upper room from the time that Jesus came and he began to teach. Okay, I, I think we can go both places. But, but bottom line is, there's continuity here. He can trace this back to Jesus and the things Jesus said can be traced back to Moses. Because you remember when Jesus came? Jesus didn't just immediately say, hey, you know what? There's a new standard of love in town. You know what he came and he said? He said, don't you think that I came to undo, to any way annul, abrogate, put away the law and the prophets? He said, I did not do that. He said, you better be teaching them and you better be doing them. And you know what? To sum up the law and the prophets, it's the golden rule. That's what he said. He said, you basically want to treat other people the way you want to be treated. He said, that's all the law and the prophets. And you know, in another place, he very specifically went right after love. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the great first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And he specifically says, you don't ever want to think I came to abolish it. So, there's continuity. He, John is saying, look, I'm not going on ahead with anything. That's important. That's important. 
We want to be, I'll tell you, when you read through your New Testaments, you just can't, you cannot help but see those authors, if they wanted to convince you of anything, it is they were not coming up with some new sect, some new teaching. This is built on what Christ taught, and this is built on what Moses taught. Why? Because if you can't trace it back to that, what do you think is going to happen if you can't trace Christianity back to the Old Testament? The Jews are going to reject it in a second. Anybody that's Berean is going to reject it in a second if there's no continuity there. So in that sense, folks, old is really important. Okay, let's talk about new. Let me tell you something. One, one sense that this is new, even when we're talking about Moses, Moses said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But even there, this is new. Why? Because the true neighbor had come. Nobody had ever loved their neighbor like Christ loved his neighbor. Nobody. The true neighbor. Before that, you recognize Moses gave us words. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whoever did that. Nobody ever did. I mean, that was the standard. We had it in black and white on a white page. But, but the fact is, we just had the command. But you know what's new? Now we have an example. Somebody that's actually lived this out. And I want you, I want you to watch how John develops this newness for us. Because this, this, to me, this, this is marvelous. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 8. Just watch this. Because he's, he's going to try to explain to us, but it, we, we kind of have to really see what he's saying here. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Now, let me tell you this. You can't see this in the English, but I know this from just a, a glance at the Greek scholars. They all want to really emphasize that which is true based on the neuter and the feminine and what's going on here in the original. What's being emphasized is this. Newness is what's being emphasized. That which is true in him and in you, the truth of the newness is what's seen in both Christ and in you. Why? Because the darkness, you got to grasp this, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You say, what's that? What's this mean practically for us? What's going on here? It appears that what John has in mind is that when we look into the life of Christ, when we see what he did, when we see how he loved, remember what it says right there at the beginning of, of John 13, he loved his own. He loved them all the way to the end. What, what John is saying right here is as we gaze upon what Christ did, as we study his love, there's a newness that's like what? Like the sun rising. Do you see that? The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. There's a newness like the sunrise of a new day. 
What he's talking about is new. It's, it's like the light is getting brighter and brighting, brighter. There's like a new and fresh experiences of discovery. It's new. Do you know, do you know what's happening? We're beholding the glory of the Lord. We study. Our whole objective is to come to this fuller and fuller knowledge of Christ. You recognize that every time we're increasing in our understanding of Christ and what He did, what's happening is our understanding of His love for us is is like the sun coming up. It's getting brighter and brighter. The doctrine, the truth behind the doctrine, that doesn't change. That's always old. But you know what's happening? Our discovery of them, our discovery of Him, how it sets in upon us, our experience of of what we're grasping of all of it. The old is is ever becoming new in our experience as we gaze upon this. We move increasingly. You see what's being said? We're moving away from the darkness. What's darkness? Darkness is ignorance in Scripture. We're moving into the light. It's brighter. His love for us. We're tasting it more and more and more. We're we're living lives. What's happening? There's a progression. We're moving somewhere more and more. What's happening to us? We behold the glory. We see His love. We begin to love more like Him. The Christ-likeness is just growing with every advance. What's happening? We're achieving new levels of love ourselves. We're seeing greater, um, greater expressions of love and what he and you know what happens you know how this is new if he says love you like I've loved you and then you recognize the love that he's had for you just over the last seven days what's happening you see this thing is just getting brighter and brighter every chapter of your life that goes by is another chapter where he's been faithful to you he's loved you he's given himself for your care. We're just discovering more and more of His, all the deep, deep love of Jesus. It just breaks in upon us. Christ's love for us as the true neighbor. He's the true lover of our souls. And we're just made more and more aware of how much love there is in what He did. And you got to think about this. The more love I see that He has shed abroad on me, and he's saying, love your brother like I loved you. You see what that does? It's pushing it higher. And every time it pushes it higher, it's new to you. It, it reaches a new level. It's like this thing is dynamic. You can't help that when you're talking about the rising of the sun and we're somehow moving out of this darkness. It's like, have you ever just stopped and thought about that verse right there? Probably not. But yeah, I mean, there are such glories hidden in Scripture if we just stop for a second. It's, it's like with every new conception of Christ's love, we're just pushed into the light, right? That's, what, that's, that's the idea here. More and more, more and more. Pushed to see love in the light until we just, and you know what's happening? Until finally we just break forth into this glorious day when everything is loved. You know, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a sermon. There's a little booklet. You can get it. It's called Heaven, A World of Love. You ought to read that. Wow. You know what's happening? We're growing in seeing the expressions. We're growing wherever onward where Christ is actually giving us greater and greater expressions. More and more as He's showing us His faithfulness to us. That is supposed to be reflected back out of us because He's saying love like I loved you. And we're getting swallowed more and more into this love to where 
It's going to come to full expression one day in heaven. We are going to be absolutely swallowed by love. The Father will love us. The Son will love us. The Spirit will love us. Everyone in heaven will love us. The angels will love us. And we will love them. And there will be no shadow of selfishness or pride or anything to taint those expressions of love. That's where we're moving. So let's think. Let's think about how Jesus loved. And again, just let's camp right here in 1 John 3.11. I just want you to think about something. 1 John 3.11. I want you to think about how Jesus loved. Now see, we can read this. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Again, you see how John, John was a guy that wrote John 13. But he's also the one that writes 1 John, and he's really, he emphasizes not that we love our neighbor, but that we love one another. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Now, you know what? We might just stop right there and say, well, yeah, but okay, he's talking about the cross. Look, it comes to a culmination in the cross. I'm not arguing that at all. But just watch what's happening here. Watch, watch where John goes. We might assume case closed. Got it all sorted. But consider this. Notice what second, what's said secondly in verse 16. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. <coughs> Excuse me. Just let me ask you this. Is he saying we should go to the cross for one another? Is he saying we're literally going to go to Golgotha like Christ and literally hang on a cross? Well, certainly we don't believe that that's what he's saying. In fact, let me ask you this. Over the last 2,000 years, what percentage of Christians do you think have actually even laid down their life protecting brother or sister? I mean, is that even what he's talking about when he talks about we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers? You see, the thing is, when it talks about laying down the life, and I think you can take that meaning and even back up to what it says about Jesus there. Don't just think about literal cross here. Oh, yeah, it culminates in the cross. No, no doubt about it. But this, look. I think what we need to recognize is this. Christ laid down his life every day for others. Every day. Just think with me. He wanted to rest. He said to his disciples, we need to go rest. Do you know what? If you read that account, suddenly there was a crowd. Do you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't say, Hey, crowd, hit the road. Don't you know we need to rest? He had compassion on them. Did you ever hear that he sat weary, tired, hungry at the well? But here comes a woman. He must needs go through Samaria. Here's a woman. He didn't just blow her off. Do you know what's very interesting? When the woman reached out and touched his hem, 
He said, who touched me? You know how he knew somebody touched him? What does it say? Some virtue went out of him. That's what the KJV says. Power went out of him. Guess what that tells me? Whenever he healed, something went out of him. It cost him something. Something drained out of him. I think just like us, we're to get recharged when he was praying to his father, when he's walking with his father. But imagine, this is one woman. He healed whole crowds in a night. What do you think went out of him then? Jesus was giving, giving, giving. He emptied himself. He did not come to be served, to give his life a ransom. He gave and he gave. He's hanging on the cross. He's interested in his mother. Listen, this is what characterized. He feels such sorrow that he said, I am feeling the kind of sorrow that is nigh unto death. And then he turns around and in this upper room he washes their feet and is concerned with them for three chapters to give them instruction. And then in the fourth chapter he prays this high priestly prayer where he's praying for them. And he's the one going to the cross, but he's afraid they're going to fall away. Listen, this is what, yes, it culminates in the cross, but what you need to recognize is we're being called to die like Him. We're being called to do this very thing. What? Lay down our lives for the brothers, for the brethren. You know what? Go down to 1 John 3.17. Because if John gives us a specific example, you want to know the example? of what it looks like for us to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has this world's goods, again, it's not your neighbor. It's like Jesus is so concerned where He wants love to shine is among His people. That doesn't mean He doesn't want us concerned about people out there. You know Paul could take this and say, Look, as much as possible, we should, we should do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. Jesus really wants us to give ourselves to loving Christians so that when the world looks at it, they're blown away by it. Notice this. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You want to know about laying down the life? There it is right there. The the one practical example, the real living, worked out example is, is right there. That's what laying down our life means. Most of us, we're not going to shed our blood for each other. But you can shed your wallet for each other. I mean... I remember Brother Andy said, he was talking about Reformed Baptists. He said, you can, you can kick them in the rear. You can slug them in the head. He said, you, they hardly will wince, but you touch their wallet. <clears throat> and I trust God is, is doing something here and, and uh, just with regards to that. But you, you see this. So, so here's the thing. What do we do with this commandment? 
Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. And I just ask this, is it, is it possible that Jesus didn't want his disciples to take him seriously? I mean, is it possible he meant us to dismiss this as impossible? You know, many do that. Many look at, at their idea of a biblical Christian is, well, you know, woe is us. Oh, wretched men that we are. You can't really expect us to do something. That's just Jesus. That's Jesus being Jesus. He's over the top again. He'd say, he'd say all these things. Just he, <clears throat> Did Jesus expect us to hear those guys in the upper room? Did he expect them to hear that and say, well, uh, we just have to put that commandment in a category that's it, it's impossible. You know what? The truth is we need to face this head on. We need to face the facts. Jesus gave this commandment, and look, if he's saying, by this, the world's going to know that you belong to me, well, guess what? If we take it as just, this is, this is just Jesus you know, being unrealistic, so idealistic, so optimistic, He's got these romantic notions about what Christianity, if, if that's how we're supposed to face this and just write it off, we can't really do this. Well, then guess what? The watching world is just going to dismiss this. They're not going to see this reality. Jesus obviously was expecting that there was going to be a reality, that we were going to actually do this, and it was going to be visible. Yes, I, I grant you folks, this is exceedingly lofty. It's out there. But there's nothing in this at all that sounds like Jesus believed it. It's unobtainable. We can't just write this off. Jesus expects his disciples clearly to aim at this, shoot for this, strive after this, press towards it. And you just can't get around that reality. I mean, look, so much so that John, when he writes 1 John, he basically lays it down. He says, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Jesus expects us to do it, not just applaud it. You know what I mean by applaud it? Like, oh, that's a great thing to say. You know, we, we say, yeah, that's good. But then what did John say? It can't be words, folks. It needs to be action. That's the expectation. So how do we do it? Well, this is certain. We don't do it accidentally. Listen, look, the, the, the thing is like, no billionaire becomes a billionaire, and if he doesn't get his billions by inheritance, no billionaire becomes one accidentally. Nobody. Nobody becomes an astronomer accidentally. Nobody becomes a mechanic accidentally or a brain surgeon. And which, which is higher, that lofty goal or actually loving our brothers and sisters like Christ loved us so that the watching world looks at us and they say, wow, they belong to Christ. Which is loftier. Is it, the thing is, it, it, this doesn't happen accidentally. It happens when we make choices. It happens when we're deliberate. It happens when we basically are, are reaching. If we're going to be successful we need strategies, we need plans, we need to be thinking. Nobody's, nobody gets here without thinking. 
you, you, have to, you have to sit down and plan. How am I going to use my life? How am I going to use my time? How am I going to use my money? How am I going to use my spiritual gifts, my resources, to love my brothers and sisters like Christ? It requires us to think. We've got to think. Thinking always precedes doing. You can't get around that. So we need a lesson. Now, here's, here's where it gets really interesting. 1 John. Go to 1 John 2, verse 5. I want you to see something here that maybe you haven't thought about before. 1 John 2, verse 5. Notice this, 1 John 2, 5. Whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, this isn't God's love for us. This, it's called the love of God because it's the standard of God's love that he has for us. It's the standard he requires of us. That's the love of God. And you can see it. It comes by keeping his word. But notice the word perfected. It's perfected as we keep his word. Now go to 4.12 of 1 John. I just want you to follow the flow of this term perfected. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected. Notice this, not towards us, in us. Again, it's the love that He requires that's being perfected in our loving actions when we love one another. It's being perfected. And obviously God's love for us doesn't need to be perfected. It's not imperfect. Something is being brought to completion. Something is being perfected here. Now go to 417. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Notice that. See, we're becoming like him in the way we love. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been, here it is again, perfected in love. And don't you love the sound of that? Whatever perfect love is, John believes Christians should have it. Not that it's unreachable, not that it's unattainable, quite the opposite. Perfect love, notice this, perfect love is the key, you see it there, to having confidence as we face judgment day. This whole thing just blows me away where Scripture takes these realities. So what is this? What is perfect love? I mean, what I want you to see, look at 1 John 4, 9. Because I think you're going to get a feel for this. What is, when is God's love perfected in us? And just watch the flow here. Because, it, because there's two major components. One is in verse 9. In this, the love of God, and that is perfect. It was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world and that we might live through Him. 
And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. But now notice this. Notice verse 11. Notice the logical flow. This is where love is perfected when it comes full circuit. And what happens? Beloved, if God so loved us. And see, this is what Jesus is saying. Look at how I loved you. And that's how I want you to love others. But you see, there's two components. What are we doing? We're looking not just at ourselves striving to love others. We're constantly watching how God loves us. But we don't stop there. Notice verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So you see the flow. There it is. This is how God's love is perfected. We start with God's perfect, pristine, absolute love for us, ultimately expressed in the sacrifice of His Son. There it is. And love. We love like an ocean. It just swallows us. That's what He wants us to see. When we get saved, God just immerses us in kindness. And and we're kept in, we abide there. It's not like he throws us into this ocean of love and and we're down there for a second and then he pulls us out, throws us in the desert. This is a life of him loving us. Even when we have to say, Lord, I asked you that I might grow. And then he comes along and he takes us. And rather than putting us where we're just having these infusions of perpetual outpourings of the Spirit, he slams us into suffering. Even there, it's his love. He said, this is the way I increase your grace and faith. And that is the greatest thing he could do for us. And God's ways, it's just, it's one expression of love after another And what happens? That love for us, if that's how He loved us, what ought that to do in us? It motivates us. That's that's the idea here. There's there's something happening. It moves us. It prompts us. It produces in us the fullest possible earthly expression of the same God-like love, and we love one another. Let me tell you something. No one in this world loves like Christians love. You can't get away from that. That's why the world recognizes, oh, they belong to Christ. Because we love in a way that the world is not capable of. And that's what we need to be striving after, folks. This is the completing of God's love. When we drink from that fountain of His love, and then we look at others and we say, how can I not love them? I mean, how ought we, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's God's divine logic right there. You can't get away from it. I hope you see there is a logic to the Christian life. How often do we get the doctrine in Scripture and then the therefore, right? Isn't that the transition you see between chapter 3 and chapter 4 in Ephesians or chapter 11 and chapter 12 in Romans? I mean, it's like you get all these, all of God's workings in our salvation. Therefore, this is how you ought to live. There is a logic to the Christian life. 
God doesn't say we should just sit there and wait for some extraordinary experience before we decide we're going to love one another. He doesn't say that you should sit there and wait for an outpouring of the Spirit before you decide that you're going to love one another. No. What he expects is for us to look at the truth of the gospel, the love of the gospel, the love of the sacrifice of his son, how he came as a ransom, what he's done for us ever since the day. I mean, do you remember what they said of Polycarp when they wanted him to renounce the Lord and they were leading him to be eaten by the lions? Eighty and six years. It's like Jesus has been faithful to me. Am I, you seriously, you want me to renounce him? How could I ever do that? I, I, every Christian in this place, you can say the same. He's walked with me every single day. He's never left me. He's never forsaken me. This is, a, this is how so much of the logic of the New Testament falls out. We get the doctrine, then we get the therefore. And this is essential. This is absolutely essential to how love is perfected. And the question is, have you received God's love? Are you a recipient of that? Then, then what's he saying? You, you have no right as a Christian to take up any other position than the position of loving others. That's the logic. You can't get away. There's simply no use for you to say, oh, I believe this, but then you live somehow contrary to that. John's not saying, wait for a feeling. Love is not some feeling. Love is, a, love is purposed. And you know what the truth is? Not everybody's easy to love. He never said that. He never said love people that are easy to love. This is what you ought to do in light of what God's love for you has done. Look, there are plenty of people in the world that are not very lovable. There are plenty of people in the world that are not always nice. We know that. And you know, Lloyd Jones makes the argument. I've heard him. I've heard him say it many times over the years in sermons I've listened to. That that he said, Jesus isn't telling us to like all our brothers and sisters. <laughs> now I, you can flesh that out the way you want to, but I think we should be striving to look. It's it's very hard to separate like from love. If you really point, you're gonna re, you're gonna care about people, but oftentimes we're being asked to love people that are hard to love. You can say, "Well, they irritate me." Well, yeah, that yeah. But what what did you do to God before He saved you? You think you were irritation to Him, you child of wrath? I mean, he he wasn't overly pleased. But what's what's the gospel calling us to do here? It's calling us to stop and think. If God so loved me, if Christ so loved me, if the Spirit so loves me, then you know what a good thing to do? Remind yourself of who you are. Remind yourself of just your past disgusting selfishness and self-pleasing and self-promoting and God-dishonoring self that you used to be. Stop and consider where you'd be right now. Stop and consider how you lived. You're just lapping up sin like a dog. What were you? You were a hopeless, damned sinner. And you were headed to hell. And that's where you would have ended up for certain. You couldn't do anything. You were unfit to stand in the presence of God. That's who you were. And you know what? You know what the truth is? If it wasn't for His love, that's exactly where you would, if you weren't already there, where you'd be ending up. 
And remember what John says. It's not because we first loved him. Isn't it not because we initiated this thing? That God said, could love such a person as me, such a person as you. You ever sit back? <clears throat> I mean, if you if your basic mindset is, well, I'm, I'm a likable guy, I'm a nice guy, I'm a good guy. I think I think we recognize the fact God loved me. That's an amazing thing. That's love. And what John says, beloved, what ought that do to you? I mean, basically, you see what's happening. God is producing a chosen race of humanity that he is actually pouring his grace into, pouring his love into, that he's creating into people who love like he loves. I mean, just think about what that means for what heaven is going to be like. A world of love. Altogether love. Notice this. Notice, notice 1 John 4.17. What, you know what? You know what I would say to you? Make yourself love others. Say, why did he say that? Because this is a matter of the will, folks. This isn't a feeling. This is something that you, you need to do. Do it. Not just in word. Do it in action. But now notice this. 1 John 4.17 By this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Wow, what a statement that is. As he is, so are we. We are what he is. Loving as he loves, that's what it says. And so by that, love's perfected. It comes full circle. But then notice this. It says that by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Judgment day. What a sober reality. As we were singing, when we stand before him complete, and I was just thinking, between now and then, I have to traverse death. And death is a lonely thing, as humanly speaking. You want the Lord to be there. That Lord who said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, and who loves you. But by lonely, I mean... Even if your family members are there, you're the one that has to die. Even if the family members are there, if you're dying of cancer, you're the one feeling the pain. You're the one facing the unknown. Even as a Christian, there are unknowns about it. Before I stand before him complete, which was in the song, I'm recognizing I have to go through death, and I actually have to stand before God on Judgment Day. Judgment Day. That's what's being taught. That's a sober reality. There's no second chance. You do recognize that. Your destiny is decided. Depart or well done. Right or left. 
It's, that, that's it. Scripture teaches us that the end of this world is coming and then there is going to be this great event that all men are headed to. Christ, high and lifted up. The judge. We heard he's not just a lawgiver. He's the judge. And there he is on a throne and the books are opened. And your life Everything you've done, everything you've thought, it's all in there. There it is. All your life recorded in the books. That's what Scripture says. All the dead, great and small, they stand before the throne. And our lives, they're going to be brought out. Judgment day is the day of the manifestation of the righteousness and the holiness of God. Oh, we will see in that day what God thought about sin. There it is. And you are going to have your time before that judge. I can't get away from it. But we have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Notice this. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Isn't that strange? Looking at judgment, John says, you can navigate this coming judgment with no fear if love is perfected in your life. Now remember, I want to reiterate, perfect love is when I behold His love for me and then what pours forth, I'm constrained and motivated by that to love you. Here's the thing. If somebody tries to be this Christian, they're trying to have faith. They're trying to believe that Christ died for them. But they look at their own life and they're just as selfish as they've ever been and there's no fruit of love in their life, guess what? You're going to lack assurance. Why? Because John says, by this you know that, you, that you're real, that you belong to Him, that you're a Christian. How? By the love you have for the brethren. And you know what if that's absent? As much as you try to be a Christian, you try to have this hope, it's going to leave you fearing. But on the other hand, if we just try to do and love others, but we don't think about God's love for us, then you know what you end up like? The rich young ruler, like Catholics, like Mormons, like Muslims, who never know if they've done enough. They're always working. What do I still have to do? What do I say? The conscience. You see what's being said here? Is there is something that puts the conscience at ease. What is it? What is it? It's, it's those who behold what God has done in love, what Christ has done in love, and they bask in the glow of it, and it just altogether motivates them to go love their brethren and to love people out there in the world too, but especially the brethren. And you know what? When you have both components working together in your life, you just it, it's like the Spirit of God just bears witness. See, the love of God for you and the fruit as it flows out of your life and you've got both. But if you're lacking either one, 
you will fear judgment, and rightly so, because that's a fearful place to be. If you're not looking to the cross, or if you're lacking the love for one another, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love prepares you for judgment day. That's a huge deal. I'll tell you this. You don't want to get to where death is coming and you suddenly are full of fear. And suddenly it just caves in upon you that something's not right. You don't want to look at your own deeds and forget God's rich, deep love for us. Because that will destroy assurance. But we've got to behold God and what He's done, His love. Motivated by that, then I love others. And that is the full circuit. That is the perfecting of love. This is no small thing. And so what do we do? Think on His love for you. Think what He's done. Go to the cross. Look at that. Contemplate that. Meditate on that. And then you know what? Go out and love one another. Yes, as much as possible, we need to do good and love the whole world around us. But especially, especially, we want to love the brethren. Perfect love. It casts out fear. The conscience doesn't threaten punishment. When you feel God's love for you and see it working out in your life, Brethren, that is so confident building. That is so assurance giving. When I just feel like, oh, why would he ever have do such things for a guy like me? And then I actually see in my life that looking at all that, I want to help God's people. I know it doesn't happen perfectly, but God's in the business of making me like him. And that's so assurance giving. And I just want to close with this because Jesus said, He said, the way I loved you, love one another the way I loved you. The Lord, think about it. He didn't fight for his rights, but he poured himself out. He didn't say, I'm above helping these nobodies. He didn't grasp at his honor, at his rank, at his glory. I'm co-eternal with the Father. Don't you realize that? Who... He didn't hear the guys arguing about who was going to be the greatest and say, I'm done with you guys. I'm, I'm out of here. You guys. He really did. You know what he did? He loved his disciples to the end. He was thinking about them all the time. He took their good upon his shoulders and ours too. You know he's here where two or three gather together and he is looking at his children right now face to face. He has nothing but good intentions for you. Sometimes it's hard for us, but it's altogether good because everything works together for the good to those who are called. We recognize that reality. But he saw our hopelessness. He saw our despair. You see him shedding tears. He was one who wept there at the grave. He, He shed blood. He just went down, emptied, emptied, down, down, down. He humbled himself, lower, lower, even to the shame of the cross. Why? Love. And that's what John says. John says, behold him. 
That's why we that's why we do this every single Lord's Day because we're beholding something in that. Just remember this. Jesus his love was never idle, so ours should not be either. Love doesn't ignore suffering. You see your brother or sister in need, you can't just dismiss that. Jesus look at and, and it wasn't even just his brothers and sisters, his children. Anytime somebody came with a need, you never see that Jesus turned them away. Not one time. He came to the rescue. And it's not in world only. It's in Acts. Jesus wants us to have the same mindset. He really does mean us to imitate Him. A lifestyle of living our lives for the sake of others. You know, One of the great times to think about this is even on your way to the meetings. You're coming to the prayer meeting. You're coming to Tuesday Bible study. You're coming to Sunday service. Don't just be thinking, oh, no, we're late. Don't just be thinking, oh, no, you know, how can I avoid other people because I'm uncomfortable when I'm in these social settings. Actually be thinking, pray, Lord, is there any way that I can help somebody? Because you know what? You have spiritual gifts, and they've been given you for the common good. Use them. It's not just for me to, to, to give to you. Each one of us have a part to play. We need to give to each other. We're not, we, we have not been saved to live for ourself, our comfort, our pleasure. You know what you've been saved to do? You've been saved to love in this world like God loves. That's, that's what John said there, if you caught that. That's a, that's a high standard, and that is the perfecting of love. We are, we are moving in a direction of such glory. Read that sermon by Jonathan Edwards. It'll blow you away. Father, I pray that some, something of the reality of this, something of the magnitude of this, something of the grace of this, Something of the marvel and the glory of it all would just seize upon us. Help us, Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.